Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand. As usual, lots to talk about. We had the non-decision by the European Central Bank last week on interest rates. And I think a lot of the subsequent economic data releases suggest extreme weakness, I think, across the Eurozone economy and provides a strong rationale for the European Central Bank's decision not to increase interest rates last week. So I think it's worthwhile trawling through those Eurozone data releases just to see what's happening. We had preliminary GDP for Ireland for the third quarter. Um, Some interesting stuff in there, although not a lot of detail at this stage. We have a Federal Reserve meeting on Wednesday evening. So by the time this podcast is released, we will know the result of that. But I think It is certainly worth discussing what's happening in the U.S. economy at the moment. Um, It stands at marked variance with what's happening in Europe and also at marked variance with what the expectation was for the U.S. economy this time last year. In other words, where is the goddamn recession? And of course, the Israeli situation continues to rumble on. So I think we're going to have to reference that in some way. But, But Chris, if I may start... With the European story, the European Central Bank had increased rates by a cumulative four and a half percent between July of last year, September of this year. So that was 10 consecutive increases in rates. Uh, the decision last week was to leave rates on hold. And I think um, a lot of the economic data releases we've seen subsequent to that meeting certainly justified the European Central Bank's decision. As you know, um, I wrote a piece for the Substack site, you know, arguing that the European Central Bank shouldn't increase rates. And uh, thankfully, I don't think they listened to me, but um, they didn't increase rates. We got Eurozone GDP in the third quarter declined by 0.1%. And indeed, the Eurozone economy has expanded by just 0.1% over the past year. The French economy, which had been one of the stronger ones, uh, growth was 0.6% in the second quarter 
fell back to 0.1% in the third quarter. Uh, Germany declined by 0.1% in the third quarter. The first quarter was flat. The second quarter increased by 0.1%. So we're basically looking at a German economy that at best is bouncing along the bottom and will probably go back into technical recession in the final quarter. We had European Commission business and consumer conference surveys suggesting a lot of weakness there in terms of sentiment. And we had the bank lending surveys for the euro area last week also showing very weak lending data. So all in all, the eurozone economy is in trouble. Um, Any decision by the European Central Bank to increase rates last week would have been a massive mistake. And in fact, I think it would be incredibly difficult to justify any further increases in this cycle. And I wrote in the Substack piece that some stage later next year, I think we will be talking about the downturn in the Eurozone, European Central Bank's interest rate cycle. One thing, Chris, I'm throwing out a lot of data here, but one thing I'd like your views on, that, that there has been, I've seen numerous forecasters come out saying that Eurozone inflation would not come back within the target range of 2% or slightly lower until into 2025. Um, I, I have found that difficult to rationalize in my own head. Um, we saw in October, the headline rate fell from 4.3% to 2.9%. So the headline rate is certainly moving steadily towards that 2% or slightly lower target. Um, and if you exclude volatile food and energy, the core rate of inflation, as it's called, has fallen from 4.5% to 4.2%. So why is it going to take until 2025 to hit that 2% target? I don't know, Jim. And as you know, the first thing I would say is that if you want to know where inflation is going, don't ask me. And more importantly, I'd say don't ask anybody else because people who claim to know where inflation is going, they're called economic forecasters. And I have bored people to death with my thoughts about the ability uh, that we have to forecast anything, let alone the rate of inflation. Um, I think that you can nevertheless make some general remarks without being spuriously precise about when uh, we are going to hit the target. I think it's really interesting that you raise the target because I'm growing steadily more warm towards the idea that what central banks should do, I'm not saying this is what they will do, but I have a feeling that they might, is implicitly, certainly not announce this, raise the target, be content with inflation at nearer three than two, for example. Uh, And we might find that when inflation is, should inflation become sticky at around the 3%-ish level, on either side of the Atlantic, actually, that central banks don't do anything. Or if they do anything, it's very, very minor. And in a way, they reveal a tolerance towards inflation coming in slightly higher than their formal targets would suggest. And I think they're going to have to, particularly on this side of the Atlantic, because of the economic weakness that you've just referred to there. That said... I'm not going to fall off my chair with surprise if inflation continues to come down in the way that it has recently on both sides of the Atlantic. And that's because, and these are general remarks rather than spuriously precise remarks, I think that the original diagnosis that I certainly had and many others shared in the early days of this inflation problem was that it would prove transitory, that the forces driving prices up 
would prove temporary. And what we got wrong was how long temporary would last. But all of the forces, or at least most of them, that did drive prices up, the supply chain bottlenecks that rose from the pandemic, and then the energy price thing rising, arising from the Ukraine war, they've all, to a certain extent, and I'll come on to one caveat in a moment, they've all dissipated. And in a way, putting it in an extreme way, central banks didn't actually need to do anything. All they needed to do was wait for all of those things to um, work themselves through the system. And I think we're seeing falls in inflation faster than forecasters thought. That's This is a long-winded answer to your question about why were they thinking 2025, is that they got so used to inflation going up and proving to be a bit sticky that they've just extrapolated recent data without thinking things through. So that's my somewhat arrogant way of describing why I think they were everybody else was wrong and I'm right. Anyway, inflation is coming down on both sides of the Atlantic. It's actually come down fastest in the United States, which has the strongest economy. Go figure. It's not supposed to happen in that way. The caveat that I mentioned is natural gas prices. Oil prices have been surprisingly well behaved in the wake of the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, in fact, I think that might be slightly lower than when the conflict started, or, or roughly the same. The problem is natural gas prices here in Europe, but also a little bit, a little bit in the United States. They've been going up there as well. But uh, natural gas prices since this conflict started are up between 30 and 40%. That still means they're nowhere near where they got to last year at the peak of the issues with Russian gas from Ukraine. But they are going to be an inflationary impulse uh, going forward. It's a worry because, you know, it's nothing that central banks, central banks can't do anything about natural gas prices. They can put interest rates up as much as they like. Natural gas prices are subject to uh, forces beyond the control of central banks. So I'm worried about energy prices in general and natural gas prices in particular. Chris, if I I could just interject there, you know, you've mentioned the pressure on natural gas prices. Brent crude oil is down at just over $85 a barrel at the moment, having threatened to hit 100 when the Israeli conflict started a few weeks back. And obviously, to suggest where oil prices will go over the coming weeks and months is folly, because given the really, really dangerously escalating situation in the Middle East, uh, we could certainly find ourselves subject to another uh, old-fashioned oil price shock, because one-third of global crude oil still emanates from the Middle East. But just say in a worst-case scenario, oil went over $100 a barrel or higher, natural gas prices continue to increase, Uh, that will certainly feed into headline inflation. My view would be that in that situation, the negative economic impulse from such an energy price shock would far outweigh any possible negative inflationary consequences. Um, And the net result is that the European Central Bank or indeed any central bank would be absolute folly at this stage to um, follow energy prices with further rate increases. Would you agree with that perception? Yeah, and I think that you need to just cite some of those statistics that you started rehearsing there. Uh, You mentioned that the region, the Middle East, does produce around a third of oil. Uh, It certainly did last year. Um, It has about half the world's oil reserves. So that's an important uh, background piece of data. The real problem, I think, should this conflict spread and involve Iran in particular, is that 20% of world oil on ships currently goes through a point called the Strait of Hormuz, which is at the bottom of the Gulf. If the, the Iranians are quite capable of trying to shut this, 
And if they do, we are back to a 1970s oil price shock. And I think the World Bank has been on the airwaves this week with a report saying, I think some weird forecast that in those circumstances or similar circumstances, oil prices could go to $178 a barrel or something like that. It's a very weird number, not, not a round number at all. But, you know, it'd be just as, I think, relevant or valid to say that in, if the Straits of Hormuz were closed to 20% of the world's oil, oil prices could at least double from here, go to $200 a barrel. Absolutely. But the context for oil prices, as set out in a very good article by Martin Wolf in the FT earlier this week, is that, first of all, the amount of oil that we use per unit of GDP that we produce has collapsed since the 1970s. So the what we call the oil intensity of our economies is less. So any given oil price rise has less impact on our economies that are less oil intensive. Um, the, the, the really interesting background piece of data that Martin Wolf presents is that over the last, compared to 50 years ago, the real price of oil today is the same as it was 50 years ago. For all of the shenanigans about oil prices going up, going down, they are very volatile. As we've seen recently, you mentioned they were approaching $100 just a few days ago. Now they're back down to the mid-80s. And as you say, heaven knows what on earth they're going to do going forward. So there's room for optimism that if oil prices were to spike up again, it wouldn't be as bad as the 1970s. But I think that that optimism needs to be tempered with the, another general observation without being spuriously precise that oil going to $200 a barrel or something like that would be an unmitigated disaster, both in terms of inflation and output, uh, because we still need an awful lot of oil to produce an awful lot of things that we do, unfortunately, from the climate's point of view. But there's nothing good for our economies. Uh, it may not be as bad as the 1970s, but there is nothing good if this big oil price spike comes. And nobody knows if what the Iranians are going to do. I don't want to forestall our discussion about Israel going forward, but one of the things that I have noted amongst many of the things that I have seen, heard, read, listened to, is people who purport to know about these things, shadowy, shadowy defense officials and all the rest of it, clearly believe that Iran is up to its necks in what's going on in the Middle East, that uh, everything that is happening uh, has been driven, certainly on the Hamas and Hezbollah side, has been driven by, by, by Iran, funded by them, organized by them, uh, sanctioned by them. So um, Iran is the country to watch, I think, in all of this, particularly when it comes to oil. But I think from a central banker's perspective, the impact of second round effects on inflation um, would have to be a lot less relevant this time than, for example, 12 months ago. You'd hope. Yeah. But uh, I'm not convinced that central banks have acquitted themselves well with this burst of inflation. And we've talked before about how um, it's completely daft to keep saying we are going to watch the incoming data and then say nothing else to imply that that's all they're going to do. Of course, you have to watch incoming data. But if you wait for the economy to speed up before you raise interest rates, or you wait for the economy to slow down before you cut interest rates, your policy is always going to be dangerously lagging what it should be. You should be gently leaning against what the economy is doing. And that unfortunately does include forecasting, um, not spuriously precise forecasting that I keep railing against, but the general kind of things that you can say, which is I think that the probability lies with the economy slowing down or the probability lies with the economy speeding up. You might even get that wrong, but I think central banks, bankers in particular, have to do that kind of probabilistic exercise. And as well as looking at the incoming data, uh, 
look at forward-looking stuff. Try to be a bit forward-looking because otherwise you risk getting your policy disastrously wrong. And the Bank of England, uh, for example, has got it so wrong that it's called in the ex-governor of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, the guy who rescued the world during the great financial crisis, to come in and do a, a thorough review of the Bank of England's forecasting failures about why it keeps getting things so wrong. And I think that other central banks could well uh, do a similar sort of exercises. Christine Lagarde at the ECB has lamented their failures to uh, anticipate what was going to happen next, so has given up anticipating, and I think that's an abdication of responsibility. So I'm not convinced that should we get an oil price spike, that central bankers, particularly in this part of the world, will get it get their response right. Getting back to the Irish situation, as we've very often discussed, uh, that interpreting Irish economic statistics is incredibly fraught with difficulty because of the magnificent impact that the multinational sector has on economic data from month to month and quarter to quarter. Uh, last Friday, the Central Statistics Office published its preliminary estimate of GDP for the third quarter of this year. Um, it doesn't give any significant breakdown that will um, come over the coming weeks. But the headline number was that GDP during the third quarter contracted by 1.8%. Okay, that's compared to the previous quarter. And that would represent a 4.7% year-on-year decline. Uh, so third quarter minus 1.8%. The second quarter plus 05 the first quarter minus 2.6, the fourth quarter of last year minus 0.9%. So you can see that quarter to quarter Irish GDP data incredibly volatile. And the what the CSO did say was that this decline of 1.8% was due to the multinational part of the economy, uh, specifically ICT. You know, there's been a significant slowdown in output from the ICT sector and indeed exports, uh, but also, and we've spoken about this many times, the volatility of what's happening on the chemical and pharmaceutical export side of the economy is also pretty intense at the moment. And there is a post-COVID normalization happening there that's having a significant impact on the data. But the bottom line is GDP contracting, okay? Um, and of course, that has significant implications for the corporation tax take, for example. Uh, when the budget was published on October 10th, uh, the Department of Finance outlined that this year, the corporation tax take at 23.6 billion would be 750 million lower than they had predicted, which is the first the first undershoot on the corporation tax side in some years because it is just consistently surprised on the upside so all of these things are related and what's going to be well vaguely interesting over the next couple of days will be the end october exchequer returns just to see what's happening on the corporation tax side and why i say vaguely interesting is because november is the big month for corporation tax receipts so this time next month um, i think we'll get a much better handle on really what's happening in the on the corporation tax side particularly notwithstanding that weakness in gdp we can still see anecdotally actually the economy is doing okay you know the labor market is still strong the unemployment rate is still low 
and consumer spending, you know, is 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 reasonable, not dramatic, but it's it's doing reasonably well. So um, a lot of conflicting pictures, as usual, out of Ireland. But I think it's just worth pointing out to our listeners uh, what's happening on the GDP side. I think that's an interesting way of putting it, Jim, in that you've described how difficult it is to figure out what is actually happening or has happened in the recent in recent months, in particular, the last couple of quarters. It's hard enough looking at all of the different pieces of data, sometimes contradictory data, sometimes data that is going to be revised going forward to get a, an accurate picture of where the economy is at the moment. Um, and I think you've done a very good job there. But I, can I put you on the spot? And, you know, we're coming to the end of the year. We're in November now. And this is a time of year, God help us, where we are often asked about what we think about economic prospects for the next year are. What's your, given all that we've said about central bank policy, about oil prices, energy prices, inflation, interest rates, the external environment, we've done a lot of work on analysing the economic consequences of Budget 2024. What's the outlook for the Irish economy next year, in broad terms rather than spuriously precise terms? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, I'm not going to talk about GDP because forecasting GDP or analyzing GDP in an Irish context is a waste of time. If you look at that other measure, which is modified domestic demand, um, which sort of strips out the anomalies contained within the multinational statistical reporting, you know, my, my thinking would be at this juncture, and it is subject to massive caveats, mainly around the situation in the Middle East, uh, but obviously Ukraine continues to buy in the background. But um, I, I would say that modified domestic demand is going to grow by between 1% and 2% in 2024. So what that would describe is an economy doing okay, not spectacularly well, and certainly um, a lot less vibrant than we've seen over the last two or three years. Um, I think consumer spending will expand a little bit. I think you know, business investment will expand a little bit. I think the export performance could well be flat next year, largely because of, you know, well, <laughs> primarily because of global economic developments and what's happening there. So, and I think the labour market will loosen a little bit. I think we're likely to see unemployment um, increasing a little bit, not dramatically. So I, I would say a um, solid, but not dramatically solid Irish economic performance in 2024. Okay, that's that's very clear. Um, I, I would say that one of the things that we forecasters always say when they are trying to answer the question I just asked you is that um, things are particularly uncertain at the moment. Uh, by definition, things can't be particularly uncertain at every moment, but that's something that we forecasters always say. But it happens to be true right now, doesn't it? Uh, it does, yeah. There are just so many headwinds out there. 
uh, the cumulative interest rate tightening we've seen since July of last year, uh, the obviously the situation in the Ukraine, um, the escalating situation in the Middle East, you know, these geopolitical events do have significant economic consequences. And uh, the, the, the problem, of course, is that it is really, really difficult to try and anticipate what's going to happen on the global geopolitical front. And, you know, in, in that regard, the um, the situation in Gaza at the moment, um, from what one reads, and what I find really difficult here is that uh, it's, it's just impossible to know what to believe at this stage. Um, and the whole world has just become so polarized on this issue. I thought that, you know, the level of polarization we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, was pretty intense. But the level of polarization in thinking that I've seen over the last three weeks is quite extraordinary. And whatever one says about this situation at the moment, you are going to get attacked. There is no sense of nuance whatsoever. I mean, the, the overall situation is horrific. Um, I think extreme wrongs are being uh, committed by both sides at the moment. Um, but it's dangerous to comment on it, isn't it? Very, as, as I have found in, in various ways over the last couple of weeks. So I hope that I always choose my words carefully, but I'm going to choose them particularly carefully now. What you said just there, Jim, I think is very interesting. You began by saying, how the heck does anyone know anything about what's going on at the moment, given, I guess, what you're alluding to there is the misinformation and crazy, crazy stuff that you see on social media that really you really shouldn't pollute your brain with that toxic stuff. Both sides, of course, are engaged in the traditional, one of the many traditional activities, sadly, in wartime, and that's propaganda. So we know that both sides are telling us uh, lies and how you sort out uh, truth from lies in the official announcements from both sides. It's impossible. So you're right to say, how on earth does a, a, you know, a sensible, sentient human being make their minds up about what's going on? And yet, you went on to describe what happens when you do express a view or when you just get involved in the discussion. You come up against everybody else, or at least an awful lot of other people, who clearly have made their minds up on the basis of something. I'm not quite sure what they have made their minds up, but we come across people who are very certain in their views and uh, are very keen for uh, our views uh, to be delegitimized, shall we say. Before I elaborate on that just a little bit now let's not go down that rabbit hole too much today but i do think it's worth uh just thinking about the consequences of of that information space and that information vacuum if you like but nevertheless all the certainty that it sits alongside of the information vacuum i think i think is is both interesting and sinister but this is about geopolitics and i think uh what i'm going to do now is read you a quote and see if you can guess when this quote was actually, uh, when it originated. Here we go. The thoughtful observer of Russian-American relations will find no cause for complaint in the Kremlin's challenge to American society. He will rather experience a certain gratitude to a providence which, by providing the American people with this implacable challenge, has made their entire security as a nation dependent on their pulling themselves together and accepting the responsibilities of moral and political leadership that history plainly intended them to bear. 
Can you guess the decade in which that was written? The 1950s? 1947. 1947, wow. And that was George Kennan. You might know that name. Yes, who, yes, he was a, a, a historian, writer, diplomat. I think he might have been the American ambassador or certainly an American official in the Moscow embassy, the U.S. embassy in Moscow. And he is responsible largely for authoring something called the Truman Doctrine, which uh, was a policy designed to not defeat, but to contain the Soviet Union. And it was very successful. There was no Third World War. Um, and those words, of course, were essentially an idealist trying to be pragmatic and hoping for the best. And what he was saying in quite high-blown language, I think, that a divided America can and should come together to realize its historic destiny. That's the high-blown stuff. Because of the very grave, serious external threat that it faces and that all of the divisions present in American society should be put to one side and then America should come together. And by and large, in the 1950s, it did. Um, it wasn't a perfect coming together, but nevertheless, they did face the external threat as a united country and there wasn't too much argy-bargy in Congress. Uh, by contrast, yesterday, Jim, we've got a spending bill and this is just one example of a more general point I'm going to make. There's a spending bill initiated by Joe Biden's White House. It's uh, in excess of $100 billion. So this is a biggie, even by American standards. This is a big spending bill. And it's funding for Ukraine and Israel. And Congress have done a few things with this bill. The first thing is that they've taken out the Ukraine bit and tried very hard to set that to zero. So no more money for Ukraine. So that's a way of saying to Putin, come on. Take the, take the bit of Ukraine that you always wanted to have, which is the rest of it. Uh, and it has isolated the money for Israel and said, yes, we will give several multiple billions to Israel. That is a good thing that they are doing. And uh, But they have said the, the exact equivalent amount, I can't remember the, the, the exact number, but whatever they are giving, they're going to take away from the Internal Revenue Service, which is America's version of the tax person the tax collector, because they don't... So the, the three clear uh, visions, if you like, of the um, more extreme part of the Republican Party want to defund Ukraine, give them no more money. They're happy to give money and arms to Israel, and they don't want to fund their tax collection service because they think that Americans shouldn't pay any taxes. So you might spot a few inconsistencies in that train of logic, but what you won't see is anybody with that kind of belief and sensible and analytical and strategic thought processes displayed by that quote that I began this little piece about from George Kennan. Um, we've often talked on this podcast in the past about succession. Do you remember uh, the various conversations and we've discussed who our favorite character was? But Logan Roy, the, the patriarch of the family, used to say regularly, something about his children. Do you remember the phrase that he used? You are not serious people. Uh, I think that actually, the more I look at succession and think about the state of the US Congress, that that was a meta, he was, his four children represent, represent the four different strands of the US Congress. Um, the absolute nut jobs, remember him? Uh, what was his name? Roman, Roman. No, 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 the, the one that was running for president. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Was yeah. it Connor? Connor, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the Shiv was the sort of more still wacky, but slightly sensible version of, of, of a Democrat these days. 
Um, they were all Republicans, of course. Anyway, I, I, you know, from Connor, who was the conspiracy theory right wing of the Republican Party, you could see the various strands. But uh, Logan's point, you are not serious people, would apply to a significant chunk of, of U.S. Congress at the moment. By no means all of them. I wouldn't tar them with all the, the, the same brush. But, the, but the, the, they are not going to face up to these external threats. What they don't realize, my bottom line in all of this, is that a combination of Russia, China, North Korea, uh, and others in the global south are coming for you, Uncle Sam. And then they're, not, they're just not getting ready for it. And um, I, th I think from a geopolitical point of view, that's very worrying because the global south has been on the fence with a lot of things over recent years, particularly the Ukraine war. And they get in the global south, these countries are getting off the fence and they're landing on the Chinese-Russian side. Uh, absolutely, Chris. And uh, yeah, what, what you see happening in the US political system and the sense of leadership there, global leadership is really, really disintegrating. Um, but then you look at Europe. Um, I don't think Europe is much better, actually. Um, there's a massive fission now across the across the EU in relation to many issues, uh, but particularly in relation to the Ukraine war and the Israel situation. Um, and of course, you know, at a time, we've, we've argued about, well, well, we've argued this before rather than argued about this, that um, there was never a time when the European Union and indeed the Western world needed to be more united than over the last six or seven years. And what did we get? We got Trump, which certainly didn't cause, but is part of the explanation for that um, really, really complicated U.S. political system or Barmy U.S. political system at the moment. And of course, we got Brexit in the United Kingdom. And I, I have always believed and continue to believe that the EU was weakened by um, the UK leaving because I, I always felt the UK did bring a greater sense of stability and solidarity to the European Union, despite um, all of the problems the UK has traditionally had with the European Union. But, you know, you can see both the United States and the European Union extremely fractured at the moment to varying degrees. And that is certainly very, very dangerous in the context of those global geopolitical alliances that you described a second ago. Okay, Jim, I think that's probably a good moment to wrap it there. We're running, uh, we're over time. And uh, thankfully, we've not managed to go into the, uh, down that rabbit hole of what we both think about what's going on in the Middle East at the moment. But I suspect we are going to come back to this, if not next time, then very, very soon. So good to talk and speak to you very soon. Yeah, Chris, um, you are recording a podcast with Shane O'Mara, our friend in Trinity. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to be available to do that because of a, a prior commitment. So uh, best of luck with that one. I look forward to listening to it. So, Cheers, buddy. Good to talk. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. 
comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.